Good morning, everyone. Good morning to all of you online. It is good to be here this morning. I want to reiterate what Kevin said, how grateful we are to you, Iona, and to all of our volunteers. Uh, I think that's probably been one of my greatest joys is being able to work with a team of people that are so dedicated and so committed to, to serving Jesus. And so thank you. Thank you for all that you do. Also, for all of you online, um, I look forward to the day when you can come and hear how good the worship team sounds. It just isn't the same online. I know the tech team does all they can to give you a, a good signal, but the live experience is just phenomenal. So thanks to the worship team for their continued vigilance, diligence, commitment. I don't, I don't even have the words. Uh, they've, they've suffered through all this COVID stuff immensely. So my thanks to the team, special thanks to Lisa, who's continued to lead so amazingly well. This week, my family had another tragedy. Uh, one of Karen's aunts died suddenly on Monday, and... I have to confess that I have been a bit numb this week, and I was saying to a few people that you probably didn't get your money's worth in me. I spent, I spent some time, I would s- caught myself a few times sitting in my office staring at a wall, and I have no idea how much time had passed, but I'm not sure I'm alone. I think we are all dealing with this deep sense of loss and grief, whether that's because we've had a death in the family or whether that's just a deep sense of, of all of the loss that we've all experienced and the news just seems to constantly be negative. And I just want to acknowledge that our hearts are collectively broken. I was privileged a few years ago to take a course on restorative justice and conflict management. And one of the things that struck me about that, other than just some of the really interesting ways, in many ways being led by our First Nations communities, different ways of approaching justice and restoration, was how in the world of conflict management, how much we have to look at the condition of our hearts. And so our hearts right now are broken, but... I think looking deeply at our hearts and the conditions of our hearts, it's a deeply Christian thing to do. Jesus talks about our hearts. Scripture talks about our hearts. And in the world of restorative justice and conflict management, there are two types of issues that have to be sorted through and and considered. The first one we call substantive issues. Those are the things that are happening that need to be addressed you stole from me, or you're preventing me from doing something that I am legally able or permitted to do. Those, those issues are called issues of substance. The other issue are heart issues. And you can tell a heart issue when somebody says something like, it's the principle of the thing. Because it rarely is. It's something that's happened inside of us that's caused us to pull away or to be angry or to feel offense that 
holds us from being restored with another person. In my own journey to wholeness, in learning this, was a huge step for me in being able to reconcile with long past hurts that I was holding against people. And I learned that we're called to take them to God because it's rarely about the other person. Now, this doesn't mean that we haven't been hurt. It doesn't mean there isn't something that needs to be addressed. But with the heart issues, this is almost always about me and how I've closed myself off. And this decision to remain upset with someone, to remain distant from someone, to cut somebody off, binds us and holds us in conflict. Now, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus comes and he addresses the condition of the heart. Now, the Scripture says about the heart that it involves our true self. The Bible speaks of our thoughts and desires, decision-making, intellect, and understanding, all based in the heart. Thinking, our personhood, emotion, conscience, convictions, motivation, body, desires, foolishness, all of these are referred to in Scripture as centered on our heart. Now, I think this makes sense because the Hebrew people didn't have modern technology to look at brain scans. All they knew is that when a pretty girl walked by, their heart rate increased. When they got scared, their heart rate increased. When you died, your heart stopped. So the heart was the center of everything. And of course, in the modern world, we know it's the brain. But we know also that there's something when we say it's about the heart we get it. You see, the heart can be enlightened or hardened. It can convince, deceive, or cause compassion. It can burn or it can unite. And your heart can understand another person in a way that your, your mind and your brain simply can't. So we're seeking to understand the heart. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has really been talking to this point about righteousness, about holiness. And he started off with talking about righteousness and happiness and how this idea of a kingdom righteousness, a kingdom happiness, the happiness that belongs to the disciple of Jesus is an upside down one. Blessed are those who are meek, persecuted, seek the good of the other. These are not worldly ways of determining, determining and measuring happiness. But Jesus is saying, this is the way of the kingdom. He then talked about righteousness and discipleship, what it means to be the disciple of Jesus, salt and light, influencing the world through our, our very presence as we bring Jesus into the places in which we've been called to live and serve. He talks about righteousness and scripture. We talked about this last week. That, that all of it matters. That we're not to abandon truth. That we're to embrace it and allow it to influence our lives. Well, today we're going to talk about how Jesus turns his attention to morality. And so righteousness and morality. And he has six moral focus points 
And we're going to do two of them today. And those six begin with anger and lust. And these are the heart issues. He goes on and talks about divorce and oaths. So these are issues of our character. And then he finishes up with retaliation and love. And these are the issues of our behaviors, our actions. But I think it's really important as we look this morning at the issues of the heart. We take a moment and we step back. You see, Jesus is talking about anger and lust. Those two emotions that probably, if we think about it, are the vast majority of the problems that exist within our homes, our society, our church, and our own hearts, kind of falls into those two categories. And so in Matthew 5, verse 21 to 26, Jesus opens up the dialogue about anger. Now, I don't think that Jesus would talk about anger in an angry tone. Often when I've heard this passage read, it's read aggressively. It's read as, you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder, but if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say to you, even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. It sounds legalistic. It sounds bombastic. It sounds like Jesus is sticking his finger right into your chest and saying, I'm talking to you. But I don't think that's the way Jesus did it. It makes no sense to me that Jesus would call us to a life of abandoning anger while being angry himself. So as we read this passage, I want you to imagine Jesus seated on the mountaintop, looking at his disciples, loving them deeply, calling them to an ethic that was deeper than what the Pharisees were teaching. He was eyeing the crowd who were pressing in to hear every one of his words. He wanted them to know the truth. He desperately wanted them to come into a new and restored relationship with God through himself. He was conscious of the Pharisees who were hovering, afraid of having their flocks stolen. Who were teaching an ethic that was narrow, truncated. And here Jesus is speaking with an authority, the authority that surpassed Moses. I can imagine they were angry that day. And these words go out over the mountainside and they penetrate hearts. And I think we have a choice today. Will we be the disciples who are at the feet of Jesus, hung on every word? Or will we be the crowd pressed in, really wondering who this person is? Or will we be the Pharisees? And will we harden our hearts and push away what Jesus is trying to do and say to us this morning? The choice belongs to each and every one of us. But when you hear these words, my prayer is that you would hear them from a God who is compassionate and loves you deeply. He goes on to say, if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before uh, 
It's before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, if you are singing praises in church, if you're putting your money in the offering plate, if you are coming up to take communion with your brothers and sisters, and you remember that someone has something against you, leave the church and go and be reconciled with that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Then come and sing your praises before Him. Then put your offering in the plate. Then take communion. Then serve as a volunteer in the church. Then go and do likewise. When you are on the way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into the prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is speaking from the heart to your heart. He's quoting the law, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's coming right out of the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is quoting the Torah. But he's also calling the attention, calling attention to the people and saying, the Pharisees are telling you this. This is what the Pharisees are saying the law says. But I say different. Jesus is interpreting, extending, and countering a false understanding of the law. And he's opposing an old interpretation, probes behind Scripture to look at the mind of God, revealing an intent and a call upon us in how to live as the people of Jesus. Jesus redefines murder. He calls people to reconciliation, and he repeats this with a warning. You see, the law was meant to mitigate murder. It was to protect the innocent and restrain vengeance in an extremely violent time. But Jesus comes back and he confronts this anger and he says, it is not good enough that you simply don't plunge a knife into your enemy's back. If you actually have anger towards someone, a brother, a sister, a friend, an enemy, that is the same thing in the eyes of God And God takes this seriously. Jesus is dismantling an old ethical code based on culture, and he's reestablishing a Jesus code, an ethic from above. And he's calling his followers to be a people that seek reconciliation. He wants us to know what it means to live beyond anger, And live in such a way that our desire to reconcile with one another would trump our worship. It would trump our giving. It would trump everything we do in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that sets me back a little bit. But Jesus is saying, before you even step into church... Reconcile with your brother and your sister. 
You see, if something has someone against you, means we're called to live a radically reconciled life. Now I want to pop in a couple of pastoral notes here. There is a danger that we could be overly scrupulous about this. I'm not talking about something petty or trivial. And I'm certainly not saying we should allow someone else to control our behavior or disrupt us because they're trying to use something like this against us. It's not about a theological difference or a small disagreement. It is about anger. But be warned, the smallest of things, if left untreated, can fester and become infected. This is about love, and love means fellowship. And when our fellowship is broken, Jesus has something to say about that. Because fellowship always with human beings who are sinful requires reconciliation. And Jesus goes on to talk about the legal disputes, the adversaries, which means he's not just talking about those we love, our family members, our church members. He's actually talking about those who outright hate us. Blessed are those who are persecuted. We're called to seek reconciliation with our brother and our friend, but also with our adversary and our enemy. He leaves no one off the table. Go and be reconciled. First do that, and then come. Involves the church, the courts, worship, everything. Luther talks about the anger of love. So he is saying, and I think Jesus shows this in his life, that there is such thing as a righteous anger. I think it's okay to be angry when a child is abused. I think it's okay to be angry at rampant poverty, homelessness, addiction in the streets. I think those are things that we can be angry about. But what we're angry about is sin and brokenness and injustice. But when we have heart issues, it infects us and causes us to feel anger towards the person who is struggling. I saw this all the time in my, in, my, in my former life where people would somehow blame the addict or the homeless person and they would have anger towards them. And it always broke my heart because they would almost always never have anger about the injustice. Jesus goes on in a similar tone and calls us to look more deeply at adultery and lust You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, so once again, Jesus is superseding his authority over Moses. Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. I don't know if we were listening to that for the first time. We'd be like, what? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
Once again, Jesus is quoting and deepening Moses. And he is saying, this matters. This is a new depth to the understanding of what God is saying about purity. Scriptures are full of misdirected sex. And he's, Jesus is pushing us to think deeply about this. But he's not just talking about guys. He's talking about all desire, male and female. About how these passions seize and create opportunities for scheming and rationalization. In Job 24, it writes, The adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No one will see me then. And he hides his face so that no one will know him. Just as murder begins with anger, adultery begins with lust, and Jesus demands transformation by removing the source of that desire. You see, Jesus is specifically and overtly not siding with a patriarchal and chauvinistic sexual norm that dominated the day. Basically, it was okay for a guy, but it was not okay for women. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. My people will be different. He's redefining adultery and he's pointing back to our hearts. You see, discipleship is about a self-denial that is complete with our bond in Jesus. And our bond with Jesus permits no desire without love. James says, these desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And so this is about an intent that goes along behind our thoughts and our minds. And it's a stunning new ethic to say that just thinking about it is akin to adultery is a pretty significant statement on the part of Jesus. But we're not to take it legalistically. Jesus is not saying, just because I had a sexual thought doesn't mean I'm now subject to stoning or divorce. But he does say it, this matters and we're to take it seriously. And it begins now. It begins by laying the responsibility at the feet of the individual and not the other person. Jesus is expecting us to control our own desires. He's demanding transformation. And it's a demand that is, I think, impossible without Jesus. This is not an easy ask. And that's why I think he says, right hand off, right eye out. We're called to avoid those things that give us troubles. And I think there's a few things to note here. And I'm going to specifically speak to women. There is a big difference between making yourself attractive and making yourself seductive. I am not the person that says you are responsible for the mind and thoughts of men. Guys, that's up to us. Period. But there is a difference between seeking to look nice and seeking to seduce. You're worth more than that, women. Girls, you're worth more than that. But it is not your problem. 
if guys can't get a grip on their thoughts. It's also not about self-mutilation. Alexander of Origen made himself a eunuch. And in AD 325, the Council of Nicaea actually had to ban such behavior. So I am not saying that we're supposed to actually physically harm ourselves. But it is about being vigilant. Not about laws. Because arousal is deeply personal. Self-discipline and control will be easier for some. I have a couple of good friends who worked for International Justice Mission in the area of child exploitation. And one of them, his job was to go through the internet looking at all the stuff there to look for child exploitation and child pornography so that they could locate it and persecute it and prosecute it, sorry. I can't even imagine what my friends saw every day. I asked him one day, how do you do it? He says, God has blessed me with the ability to not get caught up in that. And I said to him, I could never do your job. He said, you know, most men couldn't. So it's not legalistic. It's also not about a single trip or a fall. But it is about a person whose life is wrecked by temptation. So how do we live the story? I want us to look in our own hearts. There are three possible interpretations to what Jesus is talking about. Some radical, utopian, absolute prohibition on lust and anger. Hyperbole, so it doesn't really matter for us, could be a second. Or he's drawing our attention to the possibility of God's kingdom enacted and inaugurated in our lives now, knowing that it hasn't quite fully arrived. So every time we seek reconciliation, every time we choose to cut out all the things in our lives that cause us to stumble, we are, in, we are living as kingdom citizens, and we're, we're saying this is how it's going to be for eternity, and we get to push back on the darkness. And if that's not salt and light, brothers and sisters, I don't know what is. Because we're saying no to a dark force that would have us trapped in adversity, would have us continue to be angry and upset and distanced from one another, or to be lost in constant addiction. Ecclesiastes says, control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. Psalm says, stop being angry, turn from your rage, do not lose your temper, it only leads to harm. James says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Jesus wants his followers to be different. It's a foretaste of the kingdom reality. It is reconciled relationships. It's a biblical understanding of love that lies behind each and every one of these ethical statements. God is with us. God is for us. And because of that, we can actually do this. Because I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. It's really a covenant relationship. It's the kind of relationship we see in the life of Abraham, Moses, David. It was completed in Jesus And it's lived out 
as we live as Jesus' people with one another, our family, brothers and sisters in Christ, everyone we know as far as possible. And it isn't always possible. And we have to acknowledge that. But we're called to make every effort. Husbands, wives, parents, children, siblings, neighbors, community members. We are called day to day to seek peace and reconciliation. Because there's an intentionality to this. It is built into a Jesus lifestyle. To pray, to ponder, to discern. Where do I need to pursue reconciliation? Where am I harboring bitterness and resentment? Jesus says, I am to settle this quickly. James goes on in chapter 4. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't know what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. He goes on to say, you adulterers, as he brings this together. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate and that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, the heart issues, anger and lust. And Jesus is calling his disciples to a deeper relationship with him marked by obedience, righteousness, and holiness. It's living out the kingdom of God today. But here's our reality, church. Anger is causing us to split. And we hear these stories all the time. And lust and all sorts of brokenness and sexual impurity is leading us into lives that are mired down and broken and not free and flourishing. You see, our brains were wired for sexual desire and sexual fidelity. Dopamine gives us pleasure. Oxytocin and vaspressin causes us to bond. This is with people, but it's also with things. So I want to push this a little further with your permission. I'm asking us to consider all addiction. As James says, the evil desires within us. Can we be salt and light? Jesus prohibits all forms of illicit encounters, physical and fantasy consumed or imagined because our hearts are wired to our brains and our brains are wired to commitment and this is why addiction is so powerful and damaging. Jesus is not being legalistic. He's not trying to be a, a killjoy. He knows how we are made. He knows how we're wired. He made us. And he wants us to flourish. Jesus knows that human flourishing cannot happen when we are broken. 
when we break our commitments to him, to one another, it leaves us in a place where we don't flourish. And Jesus knows that human flourishing cannot happen through misguided attachments. Now, we live in a media-saturated world that objectifies the human form and encourages personal gratification. And so this is about living inside covenant boundaries with Jesus Christ in a world that says, no, it's okay. You can go outside them. But this will eventually bring us harm. Most of our big issues fall into our heart issues. And Jesus is calling us to be a people of restoration and reconciliation. And it's really easy to harbor in our hearts these feelings of resentment and anger that serve to drive us apart. What I think Jesus is saying to us this morning is that we are called to look inside and to ask the tough questions about our relationships. And so I want to ask you, with grace, with humility, is there someone in your life that you need to reconcile with? Is there someone who's holding something against you and that you need to go ask them for forgiveness? I have seen again and again in ministry and mission where it is stifled as the, by the result of failed relationships and an unwillingness to do the hard work of managing conflict. This, I think, is one of the finest examples of holiness. The willingness to set aside pride, to embrace discomfort, or perhaps even pain, in order to at least make an effort to have a relationship restored. I hear it being about the principle of the thing. Jesus is telling us this is his principle of the thing. And his principle is reconciliation. But I think the same thing's happening in addiction. And Jesus is calling us, and I mean he's calling us right now, to take stock of our lives, that those things we lust after, those things that we need to cut out of our lives, at those things that we need Jesus to free us from. So I think there is a call being placed on our community to seek a new freedom. And again, I'm going to ask this question with grace and humility, with absolutely no presumption. Are there any of you who have broken relationships and struggles with addiction that are consuming you right now. There's a story in chapter 5 of the book of John where Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda and there's a man there who is crippled. And the legend was that when the water stirred, the first one who could enter the water would be healed. And of course, this man was waiting by the pool and every time the water stirred, there was no one to help him in. Now, I don't know if it was true, but the truth was for this man, it was real, but he couldn't get to the pool. And so Jesus asks him what I think is one of the most amazing questions that has ever been asked of me. 
do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? I think this is a powerful question. And far too often in my own life, my mouth has said yes, but my actions have said no. So church, if there are things that you know right now that you need to get rid of, that need to go, I want you to ask yourself the question. I want you to hear Jesus asking you the question. Do you want to get well? Because I think we can do something about it. I think church needs to be a place of healing, a place of safety, a place of reconciliation, a place where we can receive help. I don't know what this will look like. I am absolutely prepared to, small, to start a small group that would help restoration and reconciliation. I'm prepared to start an addiction recovery ministry. I'm willing to start a small group on pretty much anything if you've got a struggle. I will pour out my life to help you and make it my absolute priority because I believe in this so much. In the words of Paul, so dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave women. We are children of the free women. So church, let us pursue freedom. Let us pursue love. Let us pursue Jesus. And let us pray. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you don't leave us angry, you don't leave us in bondage, but that you give us freedom. Father, if there is anyone right now who's struggling with broken relationships, I pray you give them the courage and the peace to seek restoration. If there's anyone right now mired down in addiction, and I don't care what it is, I pray you give them the courage to ask for help. Not just from you, but that they would throw open the curtains, that they would open up the windows and let light and fresh air shine into their life, and that they would be honest and open with a brother. May we be a church that would seek you, both in our own lives, but we would all, that we would be a church that would be open to helping a brother or a sister receive healing and grace. Lord, thank you for your word, and as we come to your table this morning, I ask, Lord, that you would love us deeply in a way we can feel. May we just sense your blood and your body in the work that it has done to free us from sin and may we be able to walk out of that journey. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.